For the last uh, three weeks, we've been talking about bringing into focus the vision that God has given each and every one of us for our lives. And when I say vision, I mean purpose, um, passion, um, goal, um, I don't know. Those are all good words, I think, to describe what I'm talking about. In the last three weeks, we've kind of set the foundation for understanding what that vision or that purpose is for your life. Because everyone in this room, no matter how young or how old, whether you're male or female, no matter your, your economic background, God has a purpose for your life. If you believe that, say amen. amen. If someone around you didn't say amen, turn to them and say, God has a purpose for you. Actually, turn to somebody and say that anyway. God has a purpose for you. <laughs> there you go. So we have talked about the fact that oftentimes that vision will come to us or that purpose um, that God has for our lives will come to us uh, through times of desperation, through times of um, discontent. There's something in our life that we're unhappy with or there's something in the world that we're unhappy with. And it's those times of desperation and discontent that God will use to birth a vision for something greater within us or within our community or within our church. And um, that will um, start to burn within our hearts. For Nehemiah, it was um, the report that came back um, concerning Jerusalem. The temple had been destroyed. The walls were torn down and burned. And that broke his heart. And a vision began to, I like to say, brew. It started to brew, right? If you turn a a tea kettle on and then it starts to slowly kind of heat up until it's whistling, well, that vision was starting to brew within him. Um, We talked about the importance of prayer and planning. Once God puts something on your heart, that thing that you think about all the time, to start praying about that and start planning with God um, what to do about that situation. And we talked about how God uses our current circumstances and situations. So no matter where you are, whatever your job is, whatever your age, if you're in school, it doesn't matter where you are, God can use you right there. God can use you in your current situation. We talked about having the right motive behind having a vision. Um, if you want to lose weight and get fit and your motivation is because you want to, you want to look good and you want to, you know, have people look at you, that's probably not a godly motivation, right? (laughs) I'm thinking that probably is not the best motivation. And we also talked about not getting hung up on the how question. How am I going to make this happen? Because if the vision is from God, the how is God's problem. And how is never a problem for God, right? So we move forward today, and I want to share with you some of the landmines that may lie ahead as you live out your God-given vision, your God-given purpose. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to explore some of those landmines, but today I want to focus on one really big one. And um, even though it's a big landmine, you don't see it coming, right? Um, before you know it, it's happened and it's exploded in your face and uh, you're, you're devastated. And sometimes the vision that we have from God dies at this point once we, we encounter this landmine. 
And in fact, if you have shared a vision or a purpose that God has put on your heart with another person, you may have already experienced this. And that first landmine that I want to talk about today concerning sharing our vision with others is criticism. How many of you have ever been criticized when you have shared something that God put on your heart? I have, and it hurts. It's not fun, right? I would even go as far as to say that if God has given you a vision, that vision will attract criticism, right? It will attract it. And the sad thing about criticism is that all too often that criticism will result in the death of your vision. And there's a number of reasons why someone may criticize your vision. The first reason is that people are deathly afraid of change. I know that does not apply to any of you. You all love change, right? People are afraid of change, and so they lash out. Because when you have a vision from God, I guarantee that vision is concerning change. God wants something to change, and he wants you to be a part of that change. People are afraid of that. They want to remain safe and comfortable in their lazy boy recliner. They've already worn out the divot, right? It fits them perfectly, and when you come and say, I have a vision... Then they say, I have a recliner that fits me perfectly, right? I don't want to move. Albert Hubbard said, to avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. So let that motivate you. Another reason that God, God-given visions attract criticism is because they seem impossible, Right? Last week, we talked about the how question. How will this vision happen? How will I get this done? How am I going to make it happen? But the reality is a God-given vision should seem somewhat impossible to those outside the vision. If you're sharing it with someone, it should seem impossible. Why? Because a divine vision will require divine intervention. It's not your vision. It's a vision God gave to you, which requires divine intervention. You can't do it alone. A God-given vision will be impossible without God's help. J. Hudson Taylor once said, There are three phases in any great work of God. Impossible, difficult, done. I love that. I love that. The bottom line is visions are easy to criticize, and that criticism can come in a variety of ways. So this morning I want to focus on six different forms of criticism. Um, these, these can be roots of criticism, where it comes from, or the type of criticism that Nehemiah faced as he was building the wall around Jerusalem. And in order to do that, we're going to look at a bunch of different scripture today. And we're going to look at various passages throughout Nehemiah chapter 2, 3, and 4. We're not going to read it all, but we're going to read pa- uh, portions out of those. And in order to make it more user-friendly, we're going to read it out of the message. Um, I really like the way that he puts things. It's very blunt. I think it's um, easy to understand. And so we're going to use that translation this morning. But before we get into scripture, I want, some of you have missed the first couple of sermons. So I want to just give a very quick, brief recap of what's happened so far in Nehemiah 1 and 2. In Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah was heartbroken. He was 900 miles away from Jerusalem, working for the king as the cupbearer. So he's tasting the wine and the food, making sure it's not poison. He's a trusted advisor for the king. And he gets a report back that his home country is is destroyed. Jerusalem is 
completely destroyed. The temple is torn down. The walls are burned and torn down. And not only that, but the people who have gone back to do the rebuilding have given up on the rebuilding and they're running amok, right? They're a disgrace. They're, they're an embarrassment. So he begins to weep and cry out to God, Lord, let me be a part of fixing this. And talk to me, Lord, tell me what you want me to do to be a part of this. In chapter 2, Nehemiah goes to work one day and King Artaxerxes says, you know what, you look really sad. You're not sick. What's your problem? I've never seen you like this before. And at that point, uh, Nehemiah has been praying for four months, asking God to give him a plan and what to do. So he presents the plan before the king. And the king not only allowed Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls, but he also did a lot of other really incredible things, seven different things by giving him a job promotion, letting him leave his current job, giving him letters for safe travel, um, and financially supporting the work that's going to be done by giving him the lumber needed. That's how God works, right? Now, in the second half of Nehemiah chapter 2, which is where we are now, Nehemiah has left. He's traveled the 900 miles to Jerusalem, and he goes and he views the condition of the city walls. So we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 20. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Nehemiah because we're going to be going through uh, various um, chapters in Nehemiah. And if you need a Bible, there's some on the rack in front of you. And I would encourage you to go ahead and open your Bible app or your Bible um, in the NIV translation because we are reading from the message and it will give you a little bit of a different perspective. I always find that really interesting. So I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture passages for time's sake today. And so I arrived in Jerusalem. After I had been there three days, I got up in the middle of the night and I and a few men who were with me. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal with us was the one I was riding on. Under cover of night, I went past the valley gate toward, the, toward Dragon's Fountain to the Dung Gate, looking over the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken through and whose gates had been burned up. I then crossed to the fountain gate and headed for the king's pool, but there wasn't enough room for the donkey I was riding to get through. So I went up to the valley in the dark, continuing my inspection of the wall. I came back in through the valley gate. The local officials had no idea where I'd gone or what I was doing. I hadn't breathed a word to the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the local officials, or anyone else who would be working on the job. Then I gave my report. Face it, we're in a bad way here. Jerusalem is a wreck. Its gates are burned up. Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem and not live with this disgrace any longer. I told them how God was supporting me and how the king was backing me up. They said, we're with you. Let's get started. They rolled up their sleeves ready for the work. When Sambalat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they laughed at us, mocking, ha, What do you think you're going to do? Do you think you can cross the king? I shot back. The God of heaven will make sure we succeed. We're his servants and we're going to work rebuilding. You can keep your nose out of it. You get no say in this. Jerusalem's none of your business. Oh, he's a cool guy, right? 
So Nehemiah arrives on the scene and what happens? Immediately, criticism, opposition, right? So let's talk about uh, some of these different types of uh, criticism and opposition that he um, encountered. Anytime you begin to do a work for God, I guarantee that there will be criticism and opposition. It's going to happen. You know what hurts the most, though, is when that criticism and that opposition comes from within, from somebody close to you, from your family members, from your church members. That's when it hurts. So Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, and he encounters two of his own Jewish brothers. And they say, whoa, wait a minute here, buddy. What are you doing? I I don't think we like what you're doing. What was the source of their criticism and their opposition? Well, I'll tell you what it was, jealousy. They had something to lose. They had positions of authority. They had accumulated some status there. You see, since they had arrived in Jerusalem, they acquired a little bit of power for themselves, and they'd become comfortable in their lazy boy recliners. And now that Nehemiah rolls in, there's a new sheriff in town, right? And they don't like it. So they look at him and they say, we really don't like what you're about to do here. And you know what Nehemiah said to them, right? I don't really care. I don't care what you like, right? I don't care because I have a burden. I have a vision from God. He's backing me up. I have the king's support. And if you don't want to be a part of it, get out of the way. So the first form of criticism he faced stemmed from jealousy. Well, they don't get very far in building the wall when the criticism and opposition start up again. If you go to chapter 3, all of chapter 3 is really cool. It's a list. So if you look at Jerusalem, it's, if you look at your right foot, that's kind of like how Jerusalem is, is um, laid out. And so all of chapter 3 is just talking about who took what section of the wall and who built it. So they have gone down in history with their name in the Bible for fixing a portion of the wall in Jerusalem. How cool would that be, right? Like there's little plaques on the wall that says, this portion of the wall was built by the Wheeler family, right? Just kidding. But that's what, it, that's what chapter 3 is, is this account of who took what portion of the wall and who fixed it. Now, there are a lot of names in here that I may mispronounce, but that's okay. I'll make them up. We'll act like it's the right name, okay? So um, I'm going to read this to you because I don't want to um, put this on anyone else. So here we go. The high priest Eliashib and his fellow priests were up and at it. They went to work on the sheep gate. They repaired it and hung its doors. Continuing on as far as the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho worked alongside them, and next to them, Zachar the son of Imri. The fish gate was built by the Hassaniah brothers. They repaired it, hung its doors, and installed its bolts and its bars. Merimah, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, worked next to him, Mushlam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, Banana. <laughs> and next to him, the, to- the Tekoites, except for their nobles, this is the part I want you to listen to, except for their nobles who wouldn't work with their masters and refused to get their hands dirty with such work. That, my friends, is called Apathy. Here we have 
all these people working together, people taking care of their areas of responsibility, and then you come to the the Tequite clan, the Tequite nobles. And verse 5 says, they did not want to get their hands dirty. Everyone's working together in service for the Lord, except for this one group of people who think that they are too noble, too good, too distinguished to raise a finger. That's called apathy. Some people just don't care. They don't care that you have a vision and a birth. They just don't want to be a part of it. They don't want to get their hands dirty. In verse 5, they were saying, ain't going to do it. I'm not breaking a sweat for you. I am not going to do it. Get somebody else to do it. I'm too good for this. There are a lot of pastors out there that simply don't care that the church has become an unwelcoming place for unbelievers or those who don't know the Lord yet. They don't care that the church has become a place of judgment, a place of criticism. And I share my concerns and my passion for change with other pastors, and they look at me like I'm crazy. And they say, you got a good job. You got a good gig there. Keep the people happy and just collect your check and don't worry about it. Some people just won't care about your vision. They will be apathetic towards your calling. Another form of opposition or criticism that you may face is rooted in anger. Chapter 3 continues to share more of the different families and the groups of people that went about their work on the wall. And then you come to chapter, or chapter 4, and uh, we hear more about these two meatballs, Sandoval and Tobiah. And they are meatballs in every sense of the word, right? Uh, look at how they respond to Nehemiah's vision, chapter 4, verse 1. When Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he exploded in anger, vilifying the Jews, mocking the Jews. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Sambalat. Dan Sutherland, he wrote a book on visioning, and he talked about Nehemiah in that book. And he says it this way. If you have read Nehemiah recently, you will remember Sambalat is Nehemiah's greatest critic and number one enemy. I love him. He says, let me put it plainer than that. Sambala is the leader from hell. I have not looked it up, but I am convinced that the Hebrew word for Sambala means leader from hell. Well, that's actually pretty close. I was curious after that and looked it up. And Sambala is directly translated as sin gave life to him. What a name, right? How do you like your parents? Emily, she's like, how dare those parents call him that? I bet it endeared him to his parents. Sambalat was the governor of Samaria. He was the leader. And during this period of time, he was not happy with what was happening. He felt like there was a little political threat welling up with the work that Nehemiah was doing. Nehemiah was a threat to his position. And you have to understand, Sambalat wasn't expected to do any of the work. They didn't ask him to do the work. They didn't, he said, you don't even have to partake in the vision, just get out of the way. Yeah. But just seeing someone else being motivated to do something, seeing people rally behind that vision, made him angry. Richard Abens wrote a book called Rick Warren and the Purpose That Drives Him. Um, if you've not read, read the Rick Warren Purpose Driven Life, I recommend it's a really good book, but he caught a lot of flack for that from within the church. 
It's an amazing book. And uh, so this guy, Richard, he worked with um, Rick Warren at Saddleback Church. And he wrote this book talking about the purpose that drove Rick. And he said, you know, this poor guy, he's been called a new ager, a pantheist, which is he believes that um, the world is God. Everything, the tree is God. Everything is God. Um, he, he's been uh, accused of um, promoting false teachers. And most of these comments have come from inside the church, from other pastors. And for some reason, when you have a vision, a passionate concern, it draws anger from other people. Usually, it, and it makes sense to me if you think about it, the anger comes from people who actually lack their own vision. Your vision might face jealousy or apathy. People won't care. It may even face anger. But I guarantee it's probably going to encounter ridicule. Somebody is going to make fun of it. Somebody's going to make fun of you. It wasn't enough that Sambala exploded in anger. He had to then go on and mock them, make fun of them, harass them, heckle them. The word ridiculed literally means to make fun of, to trouble, to rage against, to be indignant towards. What a nice guy, right? I told you he's a meatball. So as you move forward with your vision from God, you're probably going to face a Sambala or two in your life. Someone who opposes whatever you do. Whatever you say, they're going to say the opposite. You say the sky is blue, they say no way, it's white. Someone who, who will make fun of your convictions. I don't know why you're so convicted about that. It doesn't matter. Someone who will say stop every time you say let's go. I would not recommend you call them the leader from hell. But you may want to murmur under your breath, Sambala. <laughs> Jealousy, apathy, anger, ridicule, and just plain old criticism. Look at chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Is that one up there? Yep. In the company of his Samaritan cronies and military, he let loose. Now, disclaimer, he literally, Nehemiah, literally let loose. So this is not the nicest prayer ever. What are these miserable Jews doing? Oh, no, no. Sorry, this is not. This is Sambalit. This is Sambalit making fun. What are these miserable Jews doing? Do they think they can get everything back to normal overnight? Make building stones out of make-believe? At his side, Tobiah the Ammonite jumped in and said, Yeah, that's right. What do they think they're doing? What do they think they're building? Why, if a fox climbed on that wall, it would fall to pieces under its weight. I love that. His little crony there. Yeah. In the movies, there's always the bully and then the sidekick, right? And the bully's like, and then sidekick's like, yeah, what he said. <laughs> That's Tobiah. Nice guys, right? They're stand- the- everyone's at work and they're standing up there going, you guys are jerks. You're not going to do anything right. That's a, That's a lousy wall. They obviously weren't raised in the church because if they were raised in the church, they'd be saying, that's not the way we have done it in the past. (laughs) Thank you. I thought that was funny too. Nobody laughed last night. Thank you. That one really bombed last night. Nobody cared. (laughs) 
All right, one more, and I hope it never comes to this. But the last form of criticism may be a fight. Fighting. Look at Nehemiah 4. This is the one that I thought I was reading last time. This is Nehemiah's prayer. And Nehemiah let loose too, right, to God. He starts talking to God. He says, Nehemiah prayed, Oh, listen to us, dear God. We're so despised. Boomerang their ridicule on their heads. Have their enemies cart them off as war trophies to a land of no return. (laughs) Don't forgive their iniquity. Don't wipe away their sin. They've insulted the builders. We kept at it, repairing and rebuilding the wall. The whole wall was soon joined together and halfway to its intended height because the people had a heart for the work. When Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashadites heard that the repairs of the walls of Jerusalem were going so well that the breaks in the walls were being fixed, they were absolutely furious. They put their heads together and decided to fight against Jerusalem and create as much trouble as they possibly could. We countered with prayer to our God and set around-the-clock guards against them. There we go. So here's Nehemiah's uh, prayer. Um, a fight is a Bruin. And um, I want to read to you, um, is, that, is 12 up there? Can you put the next one up? Is that 12 too? I want to read verse 12. I think, is it, is it not up there? Because I have one. I'll have it here. Um, and so he says, they put their heads together and they keep on building. And all this time, our enemies were saying, they won't know what hit them. Before they know it, we'll be at their throats, killing them right and left. That will put a stop to the work. We're going to kill them right and left. (laughs) I like that, right? They wanted to infiltrate their ranks. They wanted to get in their midst and destroy what was happening. We like to think and act like we're unsuccessful at fulfilling what God calls us to do because of outside influences, right? The government won't let us pray in school anymore. Therefore, I can't be a witness in school. They won't let us put nativity scenes in the town, so we can't, you know, advertise our, our church service. or whatever. We like to accuse uh, the government or other people from putting a halt to what we're doing. But that's not usually how it works. It's usually not the outside forces that kill our vision. If our vision dies, it's usually because of apathy or anger or ridicule or criticism or even fighting within our own walls, within our own family, within our own church that kills our vision. Our visions are usually destroyed because we can't get on the same page together. So the enemy comes and he looks for those cracks in our walls And he infiltrates. The truth is most people are prone to be critical. It's a reality. Many good, godly visions within the church die due to our tendency to be critical. So how do we deal with all of this? How do we keep the Sambalots and the Tobias out of our lives and keep them from destroying or demotivating what God has called us to do? Well, I want to share in closing two simple and very effective um, truths, um, but they are also difficult truths from the book of Nehemiah. First, when you face criticism, when it comes to your vision or your purpose, don't take it personally. This is super easy to say. Watch. 
Don't take it personally. I, super easy. Very hard to do, right? Very hard to do. Despite what some may think, I am a people pleaser by nature. I want people to like me. I want people to work, want to work with me. I want people to share in the vision that God has given me. So when people speak out against my vision or don't catch on to it or don't seem interested in it, it's very difficult for me not to take it personally. But it's not about me. It's about the vision that God has given me and their own fears, their own apathy, anger, jealousy. I read a truth a while back and I'm trying to apply it to my life. It says, you will be criticized regardless of what you do. So you might as well be criticized for doing what God wants you to do. That's so true. No matter what path you take in life, what choices you make, what plans you attempt to fulfill, you will be criticized. Are you coming to preach, my friend? Do you want to preach? Are you going to be a preacher? Yeah? He's like, I don't know about that. (laughs) You know, um, even the ones that you can please some of the time, you won't please them all of the time. But we can please God. As you encounter the Sambalits and the Tobias of your life, don't take it personally. And second, stay on track. Don't let the vision die. Keep on keeping on. How do you do that? Well, there are a couple different ways. First, Nehemiah kept praying. It says in verse 4 and in verse 9, no matter what happened, they kept working and they kept praying. They kept praying that God would intervene. He had started with prayer way back in chapter 1. And he continues to pray even as the work is underway. Listen to what Dan Sutherland said about prayer. Prayer is vital in vision process. Prayer fuels your vision, ignites your vision, and um, preserves your vision. The reality is that criticism and opposition will drive you somewhere. Let it drive you closer to God and you will become better. Let it drive you away from God and you will become bitter. The choice is up to you, and the choice often brings, uh, begins with prayer. Nehemiah moves straight from the criticism into prayer. Whenever they began to criticize, he began to pray. He said to God, God, this is what I'm hearing. I'm hearing you say to me, this is the vision you have given me. So make it happen. And God made it happen. He also kept working, no matter what. They were up there ridiculing him, spitting on him, telling him they were losers, and they just kept on working. When we get down in life, it's easy to slow down. And once we slow down, it's easy to just shut down. So when you're facing the challenge of criticism, keep praying, keep working. Um, Also, keep encouraging one another, right? If somebody is participating in the vision with you, encourage them. Tell them they're doing good. Tell them you appreciate them. And also, the most important, keep watch. Because the enemy is there, ready to hurl insults, to attack, to fight, to try and destroy the work that you're doing. If you look what happens after Nehemiah encourages people, verse 15 says, our enemies learned that we knew all about their plan and that God had frustrated it. And we went back to the wall and went to work. But then he goes on to say, from then on, 
Half of the young men worked while the other half stood guard with lances, shields, bows, and mail armor. Military officers served as backup for everyone in Judah who was at work rebuilding. And it goes on and on and on saying how uh, they were standing guard. They had a spear in one hand and a hammer in the other. They kept watch. You know, critics will rarely leave the area. They're waiting for you to mess up so that they can point out where you've messed up. So keep on praying, keep on working, keep on encouraging one another, and keep watching. I want to close with a scripture from James 1, 2-4. Consider it sheer joy, my friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open, and it shows your true colors. Any comments, questions, or concerns? Yeah? Mm, That's true. Yes? So, I think sometimes I criticize myself. We can be our worst critic, right? Yep. We're not doing it good enough. We're not doing it fast enough. We're not, it's not, uh, you know, the quality suffers. I might as well just give up. I'm not what God is looking for, right? I can't do it as well as so-and-so. Yeah, we are our worst critic. Yeah, and it comes from within, not just our family or church, but even from ourselves. Yeah, I agree. So we got to be careful. Be on guard against our own minds. Yeah. Yes, Jessica. I've faced the most criticism from people who love me, who want something different from me. Yes. God has told me that he wants from me. Yeah. And it's done out of well-meaning love for me, I suppose, but... Do you have an example, or do you have an example you want to share? Yes. Okay. When I was um, in my early 20s, God started putting it on my heart that he was calling me to purposefully remain single and not seek out any dating relationships. And the, the very first person I told, they they told, they kind of faced me with confusion. It's like, oh, sh- that's probably not the case. Yeah. And ever since then, it's God has that in my heart. And on and on, people will say, oh, I wish this for you. I wish better for you. I, I wish that God would bring someone into your life that you could, yeah. And, yeah. and, and I want this for you. And it comes across as, as counter to what God has called me to be. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Thank you, Jeff, for sharing that. Anyone else? Yeah. I, had, I had an experience, particularly where it, it fits in perfectly with uh, having a vision and having so much criticism. And it was within the church. I was, I felt really late in my heart to, uh, uh, sort of my past of former a, a youth Christian warfare nice. at church, and the criticism was overwhelming. Yep. Why do you call yourself abandoned or quiet? Why do you do this? Why oh. do you do that? Why do you do the other? Yeah. And all those things that praying, working hard, practicing, encouraging each other, um, I'm watching out. Uh, just it just bore so much fruit and yeah. brought so much. Um, and just grabbed the youth of the church so much and, and filled them with fire for God. Amen. Because they were being communicated yeah. to. But if we had felt fallen down and with the criticism, it was so easy not to do it. Yeah. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing that. May the peace of the Lord be with you. And also with you. Love one another. And be good. good. And